conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they owned by special interest groups that fund their campaign That's why you hear the same old things they claim This week on the Project Censored Radio Show We dig into yet another perverse Supreme Court decision That allows states to violate the constitutional rights of prisoners Blocking a major lifeline to federal courts in the case of ineffective counsel Even if there's evidence of a wrongful conviction on the state level Mark Loudon-Brown, senior attorney in the Capital Litigation Unit of the Southern Center for Human Rights, joins the show to talk about the precedent and ramifications of this decision, as well as the scourge of junk science in courtrooms, following the thread from slavery to today's mass incarceration in the South, and how he and his organization work to ensure prisoners and their communities have access to due process and justice in the midst of so much systemic racism, arrogance, and, as it were, supreme injustice. Later in the show, I pluck a recent example from my home state of North Carolina to illustrate the myriad ways in which the two-party system will insulate and protect itself from the influence of we, the people. All this and more coming up now on Project Censored. Welcome to the Project Censored radio show. We're very glad today to be joined by Mark Loudon Brown, who is a senior attorney in the Capital Litigation Unit of the Southern Center for Human Rights, where he represents people facing a death sentence, a trial on appeal and in post-conviction. Prior to that, Mark was a public defender in the criminal defense practice at the Bronx Defenders. While there, Mark served as a supervising attorney for two years and the forensic practice supervisor, overseeing the office's forensic practice group and consulting on cases involving DNA evidence. After earning his JD, he completed two years as a Prettyman Fellow at Georgetown Law, representing indigent clients charged with crimes and supervised third-year law students doing the same. He teaches a forensic science seminar at Georgia State College of Law and is on faculty at the National Criminal Defense College. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So, Mark, I, I wanted to ask you on for uh, a few different reasons, but I wanted to start with uh, something that happened in May of this year. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court passed a six to three ruling that bars federal courts from hearing new evidence that was not previously presented in a state court as a result of the defendant's ineffective legal representation. So this essentially means that in, even in claims of wrongful conviction and subpar legal representation, a prisoner has no recourse, uh, no lifeline, quite literally. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, Mark, could you talk about the precedence for this kind of decision, particularly as I understand that the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution guarantees that criminal defendants have the right to effective legal counsel at trial? So I'm curious your thoughts on the precedent, but also the ramifications of this ruling. Yeah, so um, the case Shin, uh, the cases of dual cases of Shin versus Ramirez, basically what the court said was that if you have uh, uh, ineffective assistance of trial counsel, right? So if your Sixth Amendment right to effective assistance of counsel at trial is violated, but then your post conviction counsel are also ineffective, uh, that's your fault. The, the client's fault. That's essentially what they're saying. And you can't present evidence to demonstrate that in federal court. And I think what this is, is a, a, you know, an, a further example of the Supreme Court's, I don't want to say fetish, but a preoccupation with finality of criminal convictions above all else. 
They are, they are, they are really preoccupied with finality over the idea of ensuring that a, a person's constitutional rights, including the important Sixth Amendment right, are are observed. And and you you mentioned in you know in your question about how the the right can be violated, and the Supreme Court sort of says so what. And Justice Sotomayor calls them out explicitly on that in her dissent. She notes that in that case, in particular, in the case before the court. A federal district court, a lower federal court, had found that had the, the 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 client received effective assistance of counsel, there is a quote reasonable probability that the jury would not have convicted the person. Right, so there's a reasonable probability that the person would have been found not guilty, but now the Supreme Court says, "Too bad, your ineffectiveness is your fault." So you can't bring new evidence in federal court to demonstrate that you wouldn't have been convicted and you remain not just in prison for life, but on death row awaiting an execution. And so I do think, you know, when you ask about precedent, I think uh, it's, it's this idea of finality, which goes back decades now, certainly back to EDPA in the, in the early, the mid 1990s as, as the overarching goal of the criminal legal system as opposed to fairness and getting it right. I, I mean, it's 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 really remarkable that you could blame it on the, the client because correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of these clients are just assigned someone. So how could correct. it possibly be their fault? <laughs> right. You're assigned someone if you're lucky. You know, there is no constitutional right to post-conviction counsel. Um, in, in, in state court. So you, you just have to be fortunate enough to find someone and you have to hope that they're good and that they're going to do a, a, a good job. And, and, you know, another thing Justice Sotomayor points out is that we're not talking about some technicality, right? We're talking about a Sixth Amendment right to the effect of assistance of counsel before you're convicted and sentenced to death. And she talks about how it's it's sort of undisputed. This the, the, in these cases, the clients received ineffective assistance, and she called it a uh, a breakdown of the adversarial system. And historically, that's what federal courts are for, right? They call it the quote great writ of habeas corpus, right? The idea that if the state doesn't affirm and protect your federal constitutional rights, a federal court can step in and fix that. But this U.S. the U.S. Supreme Court is putting finality and purported, uh, you know, federalism, the separation between federal courts and state courts, as its primary um, goal. And in terms of uh, like the the ramifications of this, I'm curious. Like, could somebody say that? Well, the Constitution overrides the Supreme Court's decision, or is this basically like? telling everyone who was going to use this as a potential way to, 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 to get out of prison or off of death row, are they just now completely out of hope? So I think it depends on the sort of claim that you're bringing, um, you know, uh, specific, and Justice Sotomayor called it a pervert, quote, unquote, perverse decision. Because if you do have, if you are one of the, unfortunately, many people in the country who is charged with a crime and is indigent and then receives ineffective assistance of counsel. You have to hope that somewhere along the line, 
you're gonna get effective assistance of counsel to bring that um, ineffectiveness claim to the attention of the state courts it, within the amount of time that you have under state law. And if you don't receive that, that luck or you know, that fortune, then you are out of luck when you get to federal court. Because what the court says is that while you could technically bring a claim that you receive trial ineffectiveness, ineffective assistance of counsel, you're not allowed to present any evidence of that. And that's what Justice Sotomayor calls is perver calls perverse, because it's like, well, how if my client, if my lawyers were ineffective, I need to explain why, because they didn't explain it. And they're going to and the, the Supreme Court says, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to rely on what they did. So it is this sort of perverse decision. <laughs> And I think, you know, in terms of we'll see how this plays out, um, we'll see. But I think what the message it sends to the state courts is that finality is paramount. And don't worry if you mess up because, you know, we allow you to mess up, right? Federal courts can only reverse state courts in general if they're, it, it does, it's not enough to be wrong. You have to be unreasonably wrong. Right. And so state courts can get away with screwing around with people and violating constitutional rights as long as it's not super egregious. Right. And I think that's sort of the message this sends that we're, we, we, we subordinate the Sixth Amendment to finality. And I think that's unfortunate. And of course, the same people who pass this decision are the ones who get to decide what's egregious, <laughs> like what's an egregious. <laughs> so it's, ah, uh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's horrifying. And, uh, and I, I want to touch on your work specifically with the Southern center for human rights, uh, because I found it interesting because it was in fact founded thanks in part to another bang up decision by SCOTUS, uh, that of reinstating the death penalty, which this latest ruling affects people on death row. And uh, Southern Center for Human Rights works specifically in the Deep South uh, because, as it points out on the website, of the confluence of issues that, that culminate in hor horrific prison conditions, systemic racism, the criminalization of poverty, and of course, the, the death penalty. So I'm curious specifically with, with, with that work that you do there uh, and this recent decision, how do you see this affecting the folks that you work with and uh, not only behind bars, but the communities that, the, that those folks come from? So I think it's another blow to, the, to, to people's confidence, whatever confidence they may have in the system. Um, when, we, when, when you have a quote in, in a Supreme Court opinion that says, everybody agrees these clients received ineffective assistance of counsel, but too bad, you know, how are we supposed to have confidence in the system? And, and if, I, if I could use an example from a case that I have right now, which I think is a sort of, you, you ask about ramifications, I think this is sort of the, the problem with these decisions that emphasize finality. You know, I have a case, it's actually been written on by by a few outlets at the intercept and the guardian um a, a, a client by the name of charles mccrory who was convicted in 1985 on the basis of bite mark testimony right and we had a hearing two years ago in andalusia alabama where the dentist who testified him against him at trial recanted and said we now know that the this not only is this not his bite mark it's not a bite mark in the first place. 
And so we asked for a new trial. Um, and the judge denied our request for a new trial. Mr. Okori is still in prison, serving a life sentence. And in his decision, he said, well, the jury could have decided it was a bite mark. Yeah, I know the experts agreed it's not a bite mark, but the jury could have decided it was, and and they could have decided that it was Mr. McCrory's teeth that inflicted it, right? So the jury was in free was free to engage in junk science, um, you know, reliably, and that's the opinion that's on. You know, that's the opinion we have to appeal, because and the problem is, you know, I, I would hope that everyone would look at a case like that, and there are others around the country, and say this needs to be fixed. Right, he should get a new trial. We're about fairness. We're about due process. This is a case that was relied on false evidence. He should get a new trial, but instead it's denied. And I, I fear that judges and prosecutors, because of the United States Supreme Court's emphasis on finality, that empowers them to deny new trials and to, you know, it empower, what we should be doing is empowering prosecutors and judges to say, things have changed. We now see that bite marks are junk, or we now see that these lawyers were ineffective. Let's ensure that he gets a new trial, but instead they're empowered to close the door in the interest of finality. And so that's sort of my worry for our work in, in terms of ramifications. Uh, you can, there's all this language from just from, from the majority opinion in Shin that talks about how the states are sovereign, federal courts shouldn't disrupt the states. Um, and I just think that's sort of a, an insincere cop out. Yeah, and it always seems like the states are sovereign until there's something that the, that the federal, that SCOTUS really wants to ensure is, is, a, is a federal law uh that's that that is non-negotiable like the opinion they issued about 30 minutes ago striking down new york's gun law right right exactly so it's uh yeah uh it's very convenient right you're listening to the project censored radio show on pacifica radio i'm eleanor goldfield and we continue to be joined by our guest mark loudon brown senior attorney in the capital litigation unit of the southern center for human rights I'm curious because I because you hear about this a lot, you know, as somebody who's not a, a, a legal professional, you hear about how many cases are just like there are so many cases backed up and people are struggling. They're wait, they're they're languishing in jail, just waiting for a trial. And do you think that this could also have the effect that now that states are like, oh, hey, look, there's no oversight. We can just ram through these really fast and, you know, throw people in jail, keep people in jail. Do you feel like there might be a push? To, to, to spin things faster on this, on this machine since there's even less of that oversight now? I, I would hope not. Um, I, I certainly, I wouldn't, you know, close the door to that possibility. I would hope not. Um, I, I hope what it does is it ensures that organizations, you know, like ours and others um, are able to, take more cases to ensure that when you see ineffective assistance of counsel, you are able to raise it in state court in time, right? The reality is that, like you said, if they were, if, if, if trial courts were to say, were to push things faster, as you sort of say, and um, spin out more convictions, that just makes more work for post-conviction lawyers who are trying to keep up with 
ensuring all these convictions are, are constitutional. And you already, as I mentioned, you know, you have a right to counsel at trial, you have a right to a counsel on direct appeal, but you don't have a right to counsel in post-conviction, which is where you almost always bring ineffective assistance of counsel. So there's already an insig insufficient number of lawyers handling those cases. Um, so my hope is that this will help drive people to take those cases to ensure that, you know, these are being brought to state court's attention, that the records are being made so that if, if you lose in state court, you can still litigate in federal court. I, I would hope so too. Uh, if anybody's listening and they're in law school, there's something, <laughs> there's, there's a path for you. <laughs> Probably not as, 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 as cushy as a corporate lawyer, but, um, <laughs> more important. <laughs> uh, so I also wanted to touch on because you've 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 worked specifically with forensics, and you said you know you just mentioned a case that has to do with bite marks, and I feel like in the past few years there's been a lot of podcasts and you know articles that are highlighting this bogus. Uh, science around bite marks and, you know, even, even fingerprints. Uh, and so I was curious if you could talk a little bit about how that also affects uh, the work that you do in terms of trying to ensure that people get access to justice as forensics kind of admits that it's, it's not all that it's cracked up to be on like a CSI show or what have you. Yeah. And that's, as you said, that's been getting a lot of attention lately. Um, and I think the real problem is, right, law works on precedent. Law works on, you know, what the law has always been. This is, you know, this is what the law is. And science doesn't work like that, right? Science evolves. You learn from your mistakes. And so cases, you know, it's interesting in the bite mark field, when judges admit bite marks, they cite to these foundational cases from you know, 30, 40 years ago that say bite marks are good evidence, those cases involve wrongful convictions based on bite mark evidence, right? So like the science improves, but the law doesn't catch up. And there's a way to fix that, right? The way to fix that is to say, and, and Texas, Texas has like the best law on the books. They have what's called a colloquially a junk science writ. Right? When you can show that you are convicted based on junk science, <clears throat> you have the right to present, I don't know that I don't, I don't want to quote the law, but you essentially have the right to present that evidence, right? And so the law could say, okay, we have this, these notions of finality. But we also recognize that science changes and convictions are all, all frequent, especially murder convictions, serious convictions, arson convictions are based on science. And so when we realize that a person was convicted based on faulty science, we should let them prove that instead of preventing them from getting back into court because they, they've been in prison for too long, right? And so the, these, every time these opinions come down to talk about finality, I think it's turning a blind eye so the reality that we learn more as we progress. And if we learn that somebody is wrongfully convicted, you know, it's not, all, it's not always a blame game. We're not necessarily blaming the person. Sometimes we are, but not necessarily blaming the prosecutor who tried the case 40 years ago, because back then we thought the science was good, but now we know it's not. So let's just admit it. You know, um, unfortunately that argument so rarely 
works with with courts. And so it's opinions like this that I think hurt our ability to try to get courts to recognize the importance of evolving science too. And I mean, is it just is it just hubris like that? I don't want to admit that, uh, you know, like a judge or something like that. Well, I've had bite marks admitted before. If I stop doing it now, then what about all those other like what is the cause of this? Yeah, I think there's a lot. Um, it can be precedent. It can be. Well, I don't want to be the judge that lets out the person convicted of murder. Right. The jury convicted him of murder. I don't want the jury could have engaged in this junk science like the case I mentioned. So I don't want to overturn their result. I think it's a lack of courage to do to, to do the right thing. And, and it's not necessarily because because in a lot of these junk science cases, you're not saying just release me. All you know, and all is over. You're saying, well, give me a new trial. And if the evidence is still there, the evidence is still there. And so you're just asking for a new trial. It's not the biggest ask in the world. Um, so I think it's, I think it's, you know, adherence to precedents and, and unwillingness to, to, to want to be the, the judge who lets the person out. And I think also in places like Georgia and Alabama, their judges are elected. And so they don't want that to be used against them in their election campaigns. I think that's a reality. Oh, the tangled web that we weave. <laughs> Um, this is a bit of a, a tangent, but the, the conversation that we had about the Sixth Amendment made me think of it. And I'm curious, specifically because of your work with the Southern Center for Human Rights and the discussion on in that organization about systemic racism. Uh, and of course, you work in the Deep South, which is perhaps the most stark place to follow the, the red thread of, of slavery through to today's system of mass incarceration. Um, I'm curious, particularly like about the 13th Amendment and how that affects your work that it says, quote, uh, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, <laughs> whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. So I mean, first of all, the fact that we talk about slavery having been abolished in the United States is actually kind of a fallacy because it hasn't. Uh, and so I'm curious how this also uh, affects your work and how, um, you know, this, this kind of contrast between the Constitution and the re lived realities of, of people, particularly in the, 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 the prison industrial complex um, and, and how your work seeks to, to highlight this or to battle this reality. Yeah. And I mean, for those of folks who aren't maybe in prisons every day, like so me and my colleagues often are, you know, you have places like Parchment Farm and Angola in states like, you know, Louisiana and Mississippi, which are literally prison farms with people working there. And you go into death rows or, or even just, you know, high security prisons in Georgia and Alabama. And it is the absolute destruction of humanity, right? People are, I mean, most of my, many of my clients are in their cells 23 hours a day. Um, sometimes more than that, if they're on quote lockdown. Um, for some reason, no uh, interaction with the outside world other than legal visits. And for the last two, three years in light of the pandemic, you, you often don't get any human interaction. So it's, it's profoundly dehumanizing 
And it's, um, you know, I think you're <laughs> hearkening back to the 13th Amendment. I mean, I think there's a direct connection from slavery to Jim Crow to mass incarceration to solitary confinement of mostly black and brown people. And the thing that I always think about is, and I've offered this in several cases of mine in Georgia and Alabama, and I've never been taken up on it, but sometimes I wish the prosecutor would just go meet my client because so often they are not who the prosecutor thinks they are. Regardless of what they've done, I think it would be so helpful to get to sit down um, with someone who the prosecutor thinks of as a murderer, um, who's so much more than that. But when we lock people away for 23 and a half hours a day and um, don't let them come to court, you know, don't let, just, you know, shackle them uh, at legs and, and hands and uh, bring them into court in their bright orange or bright white, you know, prison outfit. Uh, they just aren't seen as humans. And so I think that's, that's a problem, um, obviously. <laughs> and if we, we need to find a way to reinforce the humanity of, of all people, because you know, they're, they're people in prison. And so I think your direct link to the 13th Amendment is a fair one. Yeah, and I, I, I'm also reminded of the, uh, the, and this this came up recently because uh, in Ghislaine Maxwell's trial, they were saying that you should look at her her upbringing as a consideration that she was Epstein's wing woman. And it reminded me of the affluenza case, what was like in 2013, where it was like, well, you can't blame him for getting a DUI and killing four people because he just had to look at his upbringing. He was a rich kid. And how could you blame him? We never do that with poor especially black or brown people like look at their horrific childhood that was you know forced upon them because of systemic racism and systemic poverty and like look what happened like we never do that basically i just wanted to wrap it up with that with that point is and and ask you if in court do you ever try to highlight the conditions in which these crimes were committed or the in, in the, the conditions which this person existed in ahead of time. And does that ever, do you feel like that has an effect if you do use it? it yeah, I mean, that is much of our work in, <clears throat> particularly in death penalty cases, right? In mitigation of sentence, you have to, um, you know, you want to try to explain to the judge, the jury, how it's possible that this person uh, ended up in this chair before the jury, right? And unfortunately, like you say, the affluenza defense, you know, I once had a judge say to me, I said, well, judge, I have some information, you know, in uh, regarding mental health and, and some, some mental health diagnoses of my client that I'd like to offer in mitigation. And the judge said, I, I have a feeling that what you call mitigating, I will find aggravating. Right. So judges will say, well, he had such a bad life. So no wonder he's the way that he is. Doesn't that just show that he's a danger? Right. So there is this perverse ability to turn it and use it against you, where what should be mitigating is turned into aggravating. And again, it's all a part of, I think, not seeing the person as a human. And, and, and you see it, to, to, to go back to where we started with the Shin case, you can see it 
in, in, in that very case, right, where in, in her dissent early on, Justice Sotomayor talks about the myriad evidence of, of in mitigation regarding how the client grew up um, on uh, eating off of the floor, a floor that was filthy with animal feces, would be beaten by electrical cords. He had delays in development. All of this evidence not presented because of ineffective assistance of counsel. All of this evidence, which should have been taken into consideration by the jury and the judge who was tasked with sentencing him to death. Um, and instead, the, the court says, well, too bad. That was your fault. Um, we're going to hold that against you for not presenting that. So um, yes, it's, it's, it's that kind of storytelling, that kind of presentation is an absolute constitutional requirement in these cases. And yet in case like Shin, they sort of dispense of the importance of it. And it's, it also can be turned against you, unfortunately. Uh, well, I mean, I'm just getting angry just listening to you. So I have so much respect for the work that you do because to be able to stand in front of a judge who says something like that and not throw a brick at him, I just, I am, I'm in awe of your willpower and composure. <laughs> so uh, Mark, could you tell folks where they might find out more about the work that you do and learn about the, the cases that you support and, and things like that? Yeah, so we're, I'm at the Southern Center for Human Rights, schr.org is our website. And I would encourage you, you know, if, if you're interested in forensics and if you're interested in this idea of finality, we do have a few cases that have been written up lately. Um, I mentioned Charles McCrory, a bite mark conviction. He's been in prison since 1985. We're fighting to get him out. It's been written up by The Intercept and The Guardian. Another client of mine named Daniel Smith, we're fighting to get him out based on junk science. His case was recently written up in the appeal. And if you have any interest in, in helping us with those, those are Alabama and Georgia cases, respectively. Um, we're just trying to get the word out. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. This is Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. Stay with us. We'll all go down in history with a sad statue of liberty. Generation that didn't agree. You and me will go down in history with a sad statue of liberty and a generation that didn't agree. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Project Censored radio show. Welcome to First Time Listeners. I'm Eleanor Goldfield. And today I wanted to dig in briefly to November. And I do this with very little joy because I think it's absurd that our election cycles are basically endless. And as someone who grew up partially in Europe and partially in the U.S., I can tell you that there are breathers in other places. There are times when people are inundated with, you have to vote like this and you have to vote like that. And otherwise, we're all going to die. And oh, my God, if you don't vote and specifically if you don't vote for, you know, fill in the blank. 
And I'm not here to discuss who you should vote for, who you shouldn't vote for. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in uncovering the lack of democracy that exists in our voting system. And there are myriad stories with regards to that, uh, everything from black box voting machines to provisional ballots. There's super delegates. There's so many examples of how twisted and crooked our election system is that that in and of itself, I mean, documentaries have been made about this. Books have been written. It's not something that I would be covering in a short segment here on the show. I want to talk about one example in one state that really is a microcosm of things that happen across this country. So this example comes from my home state of North Carolina, where there is a candidate running with, he's the presumptive nominee of the Green Party, Matthew Ho. And he is running for U.S. Senate, again, from North Carolina. And a few weeks ago, basically in in late June, there was uh, there was a text message that Matt received, and it goes like this. And I'm reading this because Matthew Ho, the candidate, posted this on on his Twitter. It's not classified or anything. He he shared this. Hi, Matthew. My name's Drew, and we're texting you because your name was listed on a petition submitted to help place the Green Party and its candidates on the North Carolina ballot in 2022 and 2024. We just wanted to confirm whether you signed this petition. And it gives you yes, one reply yes, two reply no. And so Matt responds with one, yes, I signed. And this is the response. Quote, thank you for confirming. If the Green Party is on the ballot, it will give Republicans a huge advantage that will help them win in North Carolina in 2022 and 2024. In past elections, we've seen that the Green Party takes votes away from Democrats, which helps Republicans win. With abortion rights in the balance, we can't afford to give Republicans more of an advantage. Are you interested in asking the elections board to have your name removed from this petition? One yes, two no. Now, since the project is very, very focused on discussing media literacy, I want to unpack this message really quick. Because when I read this, the media literacy bells were like, ding, 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 ding. Okay, so first of all, Let's talk about the Green Party takes votes away from Democrats. Okay, the only way that you can take something away from someone is if they already have it. But in a democracy, nobody should technically already have votes. That's not how it works. Technically, the way it's supposed to work is that people go to the polls and then vote. And then that party or that candidate has those votes. They can't preemptively have votes. Otherwise, that's not a democracy. That's a rigged system. The other issue, minus just the undemocratic tone of that sentence, is that it's provably false. It suggests that there's actual evidence that people who vote for the Greens would have otherwise voted for Democrats. Uh, the, the beginning of this, or kind of the, the, the quintessential moment in recent history, is, of course, the 2000 presidential election between Al Gore and George W. Bush. And 
folks will remember that Florida was really the battleground state, right, where democracy, our perceived democracy crumbled in the face of of, of this of, of the most important election of our lifetimes, right, just like every single election is the most important. And Ralph Nader at the time was running on the Green Party ticket, and the Democrats really wanted to throw the blame on Ralph Nader. Officially speaking, George Bush beat Al Gore by 543 votes in Florida. And they want to say that those 543 votes were Ralph Nader's, and so it's his fault. Now, there are several reasons that this is bogus. And some of those reasons that, as I've already mentioned, are, you know, the voting systems and the procedures that we have in this country that are completely undemocratic and can't be checked easily. Uh, And there's also the Supreme Court, which has gotten a lot of ire recently, but that also in 2000 declared George W. Bush the winner. And of course, there's the fact that voters are disenfranchised in our system as well. So a lot of people weren't able to vote, even if they had wanted to. And then, of course, there's the little, there's a tiny little aspect of Ralph Nader didn't do it. Like the smoking gun, it was not Nader in the library with the vote stealing machine. <laughs> it was not this is not how this episode of Clue plays out. In fact, I mean, we can go into the weeds on this one, but I just want to briefly touch on this. Twelve percent of Florida Democrats, over two hundred thousand people voted for George Bush in two thousand. And this is corporate media that's covering this. So this is not a that th- this is not uh, a secret. And The fact of the matter is, if 1% of those Democrats had stuck with their own candidate, Al Gore would have won Florida easily and become the president. So that's the first issue. The second issue is that many Democrats decided not to vote at all. Maybe they didn't like Al Gore as a candidate. Maybe they slept in that day. Maybe there are so many reasons why someone might choose not to vote, even if they're registered as a Democrat. So when you combine the fact that Democrats in the hundreds of thousands voted for a Republican candidate and that many chose not to vote, you really can't blame the Green Party candidate. So this suggestion that the Green Party is responsible for the failings of the Democrats is a lie, and it has been for more than 20 years. So the other issue here, circling back to the text message, is with abortion rights in the balance. Oh, you sneaky. I've discussed this on a previous episode about reproductive justice. This is a Democrat's Super Bowl. They were doing backflips when Roe v. Wade was finally repealed. That made them so happy, and I'll tell you why, just as I said in an earlier episode, because they have been holding this over the heads of voters for decades. At any point in the past 50 years, they could have codified Roe v. Wade into law. They chose not to. There is, in fact, uh, some, there, there is, in fact, legislation that could actually uh, be passed. It was it was brought up uh, actually by Democrats in 1993. It's called the Freedom of Choice Act, and it was introduced in January 1993. And within six months, it was amended, passed out of committee, and 
as Yahoo News quotes, teed up for passage in the House and Senate before heading to President Bill Clinton's desk for his signature. Then the Democratic support for the bill, quote, buckled and splintered. Well, doesn't that sound like a familiar song? (laughs) So, again, and that was just one instance where they where some Democrats tried and then ultimately as a party, they failed at any point when the Democrats controlled both houses of Congress and the White House. This issue could have been put to bed. It could have just been solved and we wouldn't be having this horrific, horrific issue right now. But it was far more convenient for Democrats to continue playing, toying with people's lives and their ability to practice bodily autonomy. That was far more sexy for Democrats than to actually ensure that people had right to bodily autonomy. So those are a couple of glaring instance, uh, glaring points in this text message response. It's also kind of ridiculous if you've just responded and said i've already i not only did i already sign this but then i've already told you that i've signed it and that i want to sign it and now you're telling me to reconsider a third time so matt responds and says no he doesn't want his name removed and then the third text message reads I understand this seems like a lot of effort, but we want to make sure the Democratic candidates have the best chance to win this November, and this could make a big difference. Would you be willing to have your name removed? One yes, two no. They won't stop. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Is this not harassment (laughs) via text? (laughs) This sounds like that guy at the bar where he's like, are you sure you don't want to drink? And you're like, yeah, no, I'm sure. Thanks. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. And eventually you just have to throw a bucket of ice in his face. It's too bad you can't do that via text. So Matt responds, no, I don't. I'm not willing to have my name removed. Finally, they write, thank you for your time. Have a nice day. Then Matt replies, what organization is this? Response, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Wow. Wow. (laughs) See, this is one of those moments where they just say the quiet part loud, which I feel like, don't we feel like that's getting more common? And I'm not saying it's just the Democrats. I feel like both sides of the two-party system are just like, you know what? We're not going to sugarcoat this anymore. I think people are ready to just hear it. Whether it be being honest about why we invade countries for oil or an instance like uh, in 2016 when Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who was the uh, Democratic National Committee chair in an interview with CNN's Jake Tapper, said, quote, unpledged delegates exist really to make sure that party leaders and elected officials don't have to be in a position where they are running against grassroots activists. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) see look we just want to make sure that we don't have to mingle with like you unwashed masses okay and i just i'm just gonna be upfront about it well thanks debbie appreciated so basically going back to the these 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 texts the dscc 
the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee just said that. And so, again, I'm taking from Matthew Ho's uh, tweets here, says this is the DSCC attempting to subvert North Carolina's Green Party's successful petitioning for ballot access. They are proving that Dems nor GOP care for democracy, only maintaining power. And apparently these texts were also sent in the form of phone calls. So there were people who were calling those who had signed the petition to allow Matthew Ho to be on the ballot in North Carolina. And to, just to give some backstory, some people might be listening, particularly if you're not familiar with the U.S. voting system, and wondering, why well, I don't understand, what do you mean petition to be on the ballot? Why aren't they just on the ballot? That's a great question. You're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. Now, back to our program. If you're not one of the main two parties, you're not just automatically on the ballot. You have to petition to be on the ballot in the land of the free. And so what that means is that you have to get those unwashed masses, those grassroots activists out knocking on doors and getting people to sign their name, their address, basically uh, all their information so that it can be checked by the Board of Elections to make sure that the people signing that petition are actually allowed to vote in that state, etc., etc. And then if you reach a certain amount of, of, of signatures on the petition, then you will be allowed to be on the ballot. And so the Green Party in North Carolina submitted over 22,500 signatures, of which nearly 16,000 passed the verification process. And they basically went to the Board of Elections to to get the okay to be on the ballot, which they rightly assumed that they would be able to, to do. And... This continued, this sort of, as, as, as Matthew says, this harassing and shaming continued and basically saying that, uh, that they're, they're, they want to make sure that the Democrats win in November and some even saying in a recording that they're calling on behalf of the Green Party. So now we have... Uh, I, I, I can only imagine that the reason that they would do this is because they weren't getting enough people to retract their signatures. So finally, they're like, look, we got to pretend we're from the Green Party, which is so bizarre to me why I would never trust someone being like, look, I'm calling from the Green Party. I think you should not want us to be on the ballot. What? <laughs> How does that make sense? Like, again, I feel like just a simple dollop of common sense in these proceedings would stop most people from buying into it when we'll see how this develops so basically they were these folks were falsely identifying themselves as the green party and they were also telling people that they could safely remove their names from the petitions because the green party was already on the ballot which is not true Again, then why are you calling me to remove my name if it's already a done deal? This doesn't make any sense, right? But they're desperate. They're really trying to push for this. So this then got pushed to the point where the North Carolina State Board of Elections 
voted on this. And right now I'm pulling from a press release from Matthew Ho's campaign on June 30th, 2022, that says, quote, the NC State Board of Elections has decided to deny the Green Party our rightfully earned place on the ballot. There was a uh, virtual State Board of Elections SBOE meeting where the Green Party's lawyer, Oliver Hall, of the Center of Competitive for Competitive Democracy, asked the SBOE, the Board of Elections, if there was any, any evidence that the 15,953 verified signatures should not be certified. Again, they are verified by the state. So these are not election, these are not signatures that were just thrown in from, uh, you know, from a moving car <laughs> at like the Board of Elections. These are certified. These are verified. SBOE chair Damon Sircosta, one of three Democrats on the five-member board, refused to answer Oliver Hall's question. When Hall repeated that his only question was if there was any reason not to certify the Green Party's petition, given the 15,953 verified signatures well exceeded the requirement of 13,865, Sircosta demanded that the Green Party's lawyer be muted. After silencing him, the only representative of the Green Party allowed in the meeting except for observers, the board proceeded to vote 3-2 against certifying the Greens' petitions petition, with all three Democrats voting no. So I'm pulling this information from the, the website for Matthew Ho, but I want to make clear that there's evidence of this. There are recordings. Again, Matthew Ho uh, posted images of the text messages. There are independent people who signed the petition for the Green Party that have shared their screenshots and their recordings of these things. It is documented. And with all of this documentation of foul play, plus still having enough signatures, they weren't able to pull people uh, that uh, enough people the Board of Elections in North Carolina still voted against allowing the Green Party ballot access. Matthew Ho's campaign says that they're going to continue fighting this decision. And I think that, again, I wanted to share this story because it is a perfect example of what the U.S. does to third parties unless they feel that they really can't be a threat. And I think what's important to note here that makes uh, Matthew Ho a particular threat is that he's a three-time war veteran, a former Marine. And y'all know how much this country loves to uplift war veterans while also shoving them down in the dirt. I, I can't think of anybody listening to this that has never walked by an unhoused veteran where they have it written on their sign, war veteran, please help, or something similar. We have created a generation of veterans that we want nothing to do with. Particularly, particularly the ones who are now anti-war and now speak openly about their experiences and speak openly about the U.S. war machine as being horrific. These people are a threat not only to U.S. imperialism, but they are a threat to this idea that we are so pro-veteran, that we really stand up for and protect our veterans. Like that yellow ribbon, support our troops. 
Okay, but then do that. (laughs) Support them, not just when they have a gun in their hand, but when they come home. Especially if they're getting to the point where they have a gun in their hand pointed at themselves, which is unfortunately a daily occurrence. So this story, I think, is a powerful image on several levels. This idea that a left party is only a threat to Democrats is a a bit of a mistake. That's not true. As somebody who has grown up in the South and and, and, and obviously still speaks to folks from the South and my documentary film is about folks in the South, people in the South are on board with things that the Green Party says and things that are considered too far left of Democrat. And a lot of folks voted for Trump not because they agreed with everything that he said, but because they were disgusted by Hillary. Left-leaning parties are a threat to the establishment in general because, let's be very honest, right-wing politics are super well-represented. Leftist policies and politics are not. Again, I think that this, this this story disgusts me precisely because it is the same song and dance that we see consistently every you know like the debbie wasserman schultz quote we have to make sure that we're not running against grassroots activists and how can we ensure that okay well what's a trick that we have up our sleeve this time it's it's harassing people to remove their names off of a petition okay that didn't work then we're just going to literally mute the opposition vote you know, behind closed doors and say that they have no right to be on the ballot, even though they jump through all of the hoops that we set up for them. And again, this is not about whether you think this person should win or whether you're voting for that person. But don't you want to see all the names on the ballot? Don't you want to see all of the options? Aren't you tired of just seeing two parties on the stage talking at each other, basically agreeing on everything? One of them calling the other one a socialist, clearly not understanding what that word means. The other one back on his heels, basically saying, no, I am very tough on immigration. I've deported five people since I've been standing here. Aren't you tired of that back and forth, that sandbox tiff? I sure am. I would love to see some fresh faces, some fresh blood, some fresh ideas up on a debate stage, much less a ballot. And I greatly, greatly am offended by the idea, which has been floated by many two-party supporters, that if you have too many parties, it'll be confusing. What? How dumb do you think we are? We have a right to hear from all of the people who want to be representatives, to, who want to be senators, who want to be political and, as it should be, public servants. Because I'll tell you what, most people in the red and blue team don't want to be public servants. They want to coast on what's been good, what's been helpful to them, which is more of the same, and none for you and me. As George Carlin put it, it's a big club and you ain't in it. I think it's time to get some people who aren't in the club knocking on those club doors and demanding entry. So again, this is just one snippet of a story from one campaign, from one race in one state. Now that now just know that this echoes outward to wherever you're listening to this. And 
whatever you choose to do in November, however you choose to vote, if you choose to vote, I think it's really important to also highlight that voting inside the confines of where they allow us to vote, who they allow us to vote for, is never going to bring us liberation and justice. So if you feel that your calling is to fight for more just elections, you got <laughs> you got a got quite a fight. If you feel that your fight and your calling is outside of electoral politics, I definitely hear that. But inside of the current status quo of United States elections, state, local, federal, change is just a slogan. It can never be a reality. We want to smash, crash, bash, smash, blast the system. We want to get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd loud, this pumping rhythm is hitting. We and that does it for another episode of the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield, co-hosting with Mickey Huff. For this episode, I've also been your associate producer, and Anthony Fest is our senior producer. Project Censored Radio airs on roughly 50 stations across the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find all our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram just before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to contact us, share your feedback, or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org and see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me specifically, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. You can also follow me on social media at Radical Eleanor. Last but not least, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. <laughs>